WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Please welcome the next president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump. Earlier this week, you reported on your first Trump rally in a really long time in Dubuque, Iowa. How did that feel? What was the energy like? It was weirdly mundane. Uh, it was much less boisterous, much less deranged, much less destabilizing than the Trump rallies I, I went to. It seems, you know, curiously like a kind of regular Republican rally. That's my colleague Benjamin Wallace-Wells, who covers American politics for The New Yorker. Ben made some time to speak with me this week, right after reporting on the ground in Iowa, where the state caucuses are only four months away. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. Okay, so how did this happen? Because um, you recently wrote a piece on this, and you, you mentioned that, you know, this is your third election cycle attending Trump rallies, and that back in 2016, some of the rallies you went to were, I think you, you described them as the darkest political events you'd ever witnessed. So how did we get from that darkness to what seems like a pretty mundane Republican rally? Yeah, um, it was just crazy to be flying out and, and remembering what the rallies were when I first started encountering the Trump experience. And this isn't just true for me, but but for, you know, I think like a whole generation of political reporters who had come up, you know, in the Bush years, and the Obama years, in this, you know, pretty tame sort of political environment where you might sit there at the back of a political event scribbling notes and thinking, that doesn't sound quite right but you never felt like you were somewhere where something kind of awful might happen. Um, the Trump rallies in 2016, as you know, I think most people who are following politics remember, were really something. You know, they were often in places that were like hockey arenas. You know, very big crowds. You know, eight thousand, ten thousand, twelve thousand people. Sometimes airport runways and 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 hangars. They lasted for a long time. Usually, nobody spoke except for Trump. It was at times pretty blood curdling, the, the kind of chants and cheers and denunciations of Hillary Clinton. Um, Trump frequently from the podium would be calling for physical injury to immigrants or terrorists or their family members. Often he would indicate the press who were in a sort of designated area and have the crowd shout and scream at them and say how they were selling out America. Um, it was pretty scary. And even if you were not Going into these rallies, you know, scared for your own safety as a reporter, uh, you were often just kind of worried that you would see something terrible happen. It's sort of striking then to see him now, uh, you know, and last Wednesday in Dubuque, it was like 800 people. 
there, maybe a thousand, something on that order. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very big for a primary crowd, but it's nothing like these huge crowds, these huge rallies that it used to have. There's a panel discussion beforehand of immigration. A panel discussion? Yeah, like they have they have four Republican officials up there and they're talking about how illegal migration has created problems in, in local communities in Iowa. You know, it's it's not exactly meet the press, but it's like very much within the realm of sort of normal Republican political event. And then Trump comes in and, you know, he is uh, he's Trump. He's schmoozy. You know, he says kind of crazy things sometimes, you know. Um, like what? But, well, you know, I mean— The most recent example from Monday's rally was he said that uh, windmills in the ocean in South Carolina were leading to the deaths of whales on a rate that has, like, never been seen before in history. Really? I thought that, according to Trump, windmills caused cancer. Windmills are the source of maybe many more of our problems than we had had previously thought, if Trump is to be believed. Uh, But, you know, like, um, he's on on Twitter, he, he... went after NBC News and said there should be an investigation. They're, they're treasonous. This is presumably about some forthcoming story. Um, <laughs> so there's all kinds of stuff where you, you still like, if you read through the quotes that Trump is giving and you select, you know, the five craziest ones, which is, you know, not a bad way to like compile a newspaper report or wire dispatch, you would still say, man, this guy sounds kind of unhinged, kind of deranged. But if you're at a political event and you're listening to the ideas he's proposing, they're not new They're not different than they were in 2016. They're no longer different from what the other Republican candidates are proposing. There is not the kind of, at least I haven't experienced yet, any of the blood-curdling hostility to the press and to racial minorities and any kind of other groups that that Trump has targeted in the past. And you kind of come out of it and say, you know, he's not tamer, exactly. He's not saner, exactly, exactly. But something about this is different, for sure. It's much less insurrectionary. It's not envisioning some revolution of the party and of American politics. It's taking place within, you know, very comfortably within a Republican party and shape of partisan politics that has already been transformed by Trump. And having spent a bunch of time you know, just at DeSantis rallies and Ramaswamy rallies and Haley rallies, you know, just about everything sounds sounds pretty much the same. And that, to me, was interesting. Speaking of Haley and Ramaswamy, you wrote in your piece that at this rally, Trump was really emphasizing how he was the most electable candidate, the best person yeah. in the Republican field to beat Biden. Do you think that this um, more moderate tone and just the way that he was running the rally was supposed to kind of communicate that to people? And also, do you buy that argument? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems weird that the only candidate who was also um, facing, you know, four trials would be the most electable one. But, you know, as we've seen from the polls, yeah, maybe it's the case. It seems completely wild. I don't know. I think that, like, as a substantive matter, the electability, like, dynamic in this primary has run differently than I might have expected. Um, at the outset, people might point to the polls and say, look, in the head-to-head matchups, um, it seems like just about any other Republican does a little better against Biden, not a ton better, but a little better than Trump does. It's no longer really the case. You know, you can go through poll after poll and like Trump is sort of back to par basically with other candidates. And he will make a point of talking about um, at this rally I was at in Dubuque. He talked for you know several minutes about his own approach to abortion uh, which sort of stops short of some of the absolute bans that uh, other candidates have have put forward. 
Like Ronald Reagan before me, I believe in the three exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. I believe in that. I think it's very important. Without the exceptions, it is very difficult to win elections. We would probably lose the majorities in 2024 without the exceptions and perhaps the presidency itself. He's particularly been critical of Ron DeSantis's signing of a bill in Florida that says no abortions after six weeks, which effectively eliminates, you know, most abortions. Uh, so Trump has been critical of that, saying that goes too far. Uh, you know, of course, he's still somebody who has called for the punishment and imprisonment of, of women who, who get abortions in the recent past. So I don't know that moderate is exactly the right, the right term to apply here. But yeah, he has made a real show of being the more electable candidate. And I think the kind of card he has is that he actually won. He actually became president. He says, you know, um, about the Dobbs decision and, and, and Roe versus Wade. The whole party talked about this for 52 years, and all they did was talk in terms of overturning Roe, and I got it done. Yeah, he was the one who appointed the justices, yeah. And, like, there's no lies there. He did do that. And so, you know, um, I think that, like, you know, the DeSantis's and and Haley's, maybe more more poignantly, a few months ago might have had more of a point if they could point to the polls and say, Look, we're doing, you know, six points better against Biden than Trump is. We're doing eight points better than Biden. But now that it's basically the same thing in most polls and Trump can say, well, I'm the guy who actually got uh, elected, who actually won a general election in the past, who actually got some of the stuff he wanted done, done. You know, I, I think that that electability argument that many other Republicans hope to make has has faded a bit. And, and maybe that shows a little bit of how, how contingent it was on, you know, a particular uh, dynamic in the polls, a particular moment in time. Yeah, from what I remember in 2016, I think that there are a lot of um, sort of establishment conservatives who were very skeptical of Trump's politics. He's this, you know, incredibly rich guy from New York who supported gay marriage. And had been pro-choice. Yes, and it was very easy to paint him as an elitist who um, yeah. Yeah, wasn't, you know, socially conservative the same way that, you know, someone like Ted Cruz was. And it seems like now he's almost— leaning into this idea that he isn't as conservative as some of his rivals as, and, you know, and that that's actually the thing that um, sort of sets him apart and that makes him electable rather than the thing that will sink his candidacy. I I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think that one, one thing that is pretty striking about the way his national political career has unfolded is having been the guy who tried to overturn an election, you know, and was still able to keep, 30%, 30%, you know, 33% of the country like staunchly in his corner, you know, most of whom are, are sort of the, the most conservative voters in, in the country. He seems to have a lot of latitude to say things that are not doctrinally conservative and to keep their support. And I would say the, the things that we're talking about, a little bit of a, you know, differentiation from what is by historical standards an extremely radical anti-abortion stance that that Ron DeSantis has taken. You know, this is not like a, a, a huge amount of moderation, but I do think it suggests a way he might move in the in, in the general election if he gets there. I think, you know, he he might have quite a lot of latitude to say things that the conservative base might not tolerate from from another candidate. And how did he talk about immigration? I mean, it seems like I'm sure he brought up the, you know, the migrant crisis in New York and 
Um, you know, yeah. what he probably sees as Biden's failures at the border. But, you know, with abortion, he can point to the Supreme Court justices that overturned Roe v. Wade. But with immigration, it's a bit murkier. So how did he talk about that? Well, I think he sort of lied, basically. Yeah. You know, I think he said, I stopped all this. And then Biden came in and it started again, you know. And, um, you know, I built a really strong border wall and we're going to finish it when I get there, you know. And if you look at the ebbs and flows of migration into the U.S. Um, through the southern border, maybe you can squint and squint and squint and see some pattern like that. But well, also, I would attribute some of it to the pandemic and just the fact sure, that we weren't letting sure. anyone in. Sure, sure. So I think that's basically his tactic there. What I would say is that, you know, among the voters that I talked to, there was a sense that it would be self-evident to a general election audience, even to people who, you know, are Democrats or who live in cities, that everything is complete chaos all over America because of the numbers of migrants coming through. Everybody asked me how crime was where I live, you know, what was going on with the migrants in New York. You know, Eric Adams, the mayor, has been very publicly worried about the level of, of the migrant crisis. And, you know, we talk about national politics in the Trump era as being basically about sort of vibes and positioning and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But there are very real questions, you know, undergirding this coming election, one of which is how is the economy going to be seen as, as, as doing under Biden in another year, which is sort of, you know, TBD, but a little, looks a little shaky at the moment. But another one is, will people around the country really feel like their communities are unable to take care of people who are there? Are people going to feel threatened by migrants in their community? Are they going to feel like, you know, the Biden administration is doing enough? And so, you know, I don't think there was much new from Trump on immigration. You know, it sounded just like the same braggadocious talk, you know, that we heard six or seven years ago. Uh, I don't think that he was very effective at sort of distinguishing himself or making a case for his own policies. But I think the thing in the background is, how bad is this actually going to be? How bad will it seem to voters, you know, over the next year? And I think that's sort of a very important and real unknown. And I think, you know, one further note on this is just, I think that, you know, a big part of why Republican voters are so comfortable slipping back into the Trump jet stream is that they think that the country is doing very badly and voters generally will be eager to reject Joe Biden. And so if they're giving up a percentage point or two percentage points with Trump relative to some other Republican candidate, doesn't matter because, you know, Biden's going to be seen as so weak. You know, the Republican is going to win. It's just like a lot of confidence among among Republicans. A lot of the concerns with Biden revolve around his age and this idea that he is becoming increasingly enfeebled. And when you talk about this Trump rally, how it was calmer and more mundane than you expected. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder. I mean, can you attribute, you know, sort of the potential lack of aggression that you're describing to Trump's own aging? I mean, he's old, too. He certainly is. He's, I think, 77 at the moment. Um, I'm a little cautious right now because, you know, we're still early. And I'm not sure that Trump will seem exactly the same in six months or nine months as he does now. But I would say that there's a different dynamic around Trump. Liberals still see Trump as scary, and they see the project he seeks to impose on America as scary. And that is just hard to connect to a story in which 
this guy is aging and losing it. I don't know that he seems especially like low energy to me. Mm-hmm. He still is the same guy, still makes jokes, you know, he still um, can keep going, keep a crowd going for for a long time. Um, what I would say is he seems like he's repeating himself. There's just not any new ideas. And I don't know that that is something that is going to really undermine him in an election, but that's the place I see the aging with him. Whereas with Biden, you know, I mean, his events are are just smaller and shorter. And I think that when conservatives look at the country, they see it as a drift. And that is a little bit easier to connect to a story in which a politician is visibly aging than one in which that aging politician is still terrifying. Um, I sort of tend to think that like the Biden enfeeblement story is a very big part of this election, but that, you know, his position is going to eventually be determined by more concrete things, how much better off people feel than they did four years ago, whether they feel the economy coming back, whether they feel things like the situation at the border has been taken care of, whether they basically feel like he is improving the country. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like that's been missing from a lot of political reporting these days is just the idea that at the end of the day, people still care about policy and the issues. I feel like... um there have been a lot of think pieces about, you know, how the election is basically, you know, some kind of <laughs> litmus test or, you know, sort of figuring, yeah, it, you know, like yeah. people, a lot of people are voting for Trump as a way of like virtue signaling that they're, um, you know, upset with what the Democratic Party is doing to him. And so um, I, it's refreshing to hear that at least if people are, you know, that people are voting and thinking about, you know, actual policy, because I feel like that's something that's very easy to forget about. I, I know one thing that, uh, you know, some Democratic advisors close to Biden are are quite worried about is that, you know, both in 2016 and 2020, they struggled to convince voters that uh, Trump was not a genius at managing the economy. You mm-hmm. know, and even in October of 2020, you know, a month before an election he lost, Gallup found that 58% of Americans thought that they were better off than they had been four years ago. Is that just tax cuts? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's 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 sort of a weird stat, right? Because it comes, you know, six months after the start of a pandemic. But yeah, I think tax cuts, I think the economy really had boomed. People were doing pretty well. I don't know that Biden is going to get as much credit as maybe his advisors think he should for the rebound and the kind of managed rebound. Yeah, the fact that um, there wasn't a recession. I mean, it seems like right. Biden and his advisors are really trying to push you know, the idea that Bidenomics is working and that the economy is getting better. But I mean, this is kind of a separate conversation, but is there, I guess, is there a reason why Trump can damage the economy and not get any of the blame, whereas Biden can help fix the economy and still get blamed for the fact that inflation went up, even though that was partly because of Ukraine? And um, Yeah, I think, I think there, there's a lot going on there. But one thing I might note here is that, you know, um, those pollsters who have looked at the Biden approval ratings, and in particular, the approval voters give him on his management of the economy, think that might be one place that his age comes into play, that, you know, people simply can't believe that this guy fixed all these complicated technical things. It must have been somebody else. It must have been outside of the realm of government. An act of God, yeah. Yeah, some, something, you know, or, or the markets or, you know, Elon Musk or, you know, however you want to attribute it. I think Republicans have, have enjoyed um, public opinion advantages on managing the economy as a general matter for, for a long time. And, you know, Trump had a really powerful brand as a, you know, genius 
businessman, however cooked up we sort of think it, it, it was. One of the people I ran into at the rally in Iowa told me that he had first encountered Trump in the mid-1970s when Trump was on a late-night talk show and advising his audience when they were thinking about investing in real estate to keep an eye on the interest rate collapse, to look at the oil market, to think of it as an expression of sort of macro trends. And this guy told me that in his own, um, you know, he's a home builder in Dubuque, Iowa at the time. And he told me that in his own business, he took that to heart and, you know, managed to stave off disaster and, and so on. And so I think that like, you know, there's a long tale of him being presented as a, you know, a kind of economic genius. And I think that, um, I'm not sure the Democrats really tried to to damage that very hard uh, in 2016 or as hard as they might have. Um, and 2020 was obviously sort of about different things. But I do wonder if they might still be sort of vulnerable to a case where Trump says, you know, you had a great economy under me, you had great lives under me, and then you elected this old guy because you were worried about whatever you were worried about, and he blew it. And... I actually think that might be a more compelling general election message than what Ron DeSantis seemed to be gearing up to do, which was sort of to say, you know, this 80-year-old guy who doesn't seem that progressive in person is wokeness run amok. So all this said, we are going to be heading into a pretty long stretch of hearings and criminal trials where Trump is going to be very pressured. These trials all look pretty terrible for Trump to my eye. And I think that the primary electorate right now is dismissing those as a witch hunt or, you know, as unimportant. But I can't imagine that that is unimportant to a general election audience. And if you're looking at a situation where Trump has been through a couple serious trials, looks like he's headed to prison, is that guy really going to win the presidency? Seems a little crazy to me. Yes. So, Ben, I want to ask you more about the Trump and DeSantis rivalry, about the trials and about the upcoming Republican debate. But before I do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll have more with Benjamin Wallace-Wells on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. 
So there's been a lot of talk about how um, Iowa is really the place where DeSantis can finally overcome this huge gap between him and Trump. Um, he's put a ton of time and money into campaigning in, in the state. You know, he's been touring, running ads, getting endorsements from politicians that Trump has feuded with. But it seems like Trump is still pulling pretty far ahead. Now that you've spent some time in Iowa, what's your sense of why Trump's popularity still has such a strong hold and if there's anything that can be done by DeSantis to, you know, weaken that hold? Well, one thing that is, I think does explain some of the dynamic and the polling dynamic in Iowa that is is not really part of that, if I may, is just that um, DeSantis is not the only candidate who sees Iowa as his big stand. You know, Tim Scott has been running a lot of ads there. Um, Mike Pence has been campaigning there, you know, quite aggressively. Vivek Ramaswamy has even been spending a bunch of time there, though I think his his case is sort of better in New Hampshire. Um, if you're somebody who is a little bit skeptical of Trump, even outright thinks he's kind of unfit for office and is going to be caucusing in Iowa, I think the failure of DeSantis's campaign over the summer was just he, he could not effectively establish himself as the lone alternative to Trump. And so you have Trump and then a bunch of people taking pretty well-funded pot shots at Trump because they all think this is their chance to make a name for themselves. I'd also say that there's really been like kind of shockingly little policy content to this election so far. And so, you know, as the as the kind of potential Trump rivals have sort of been tiptoeing around the whole January 6th uh, on fitness for office stuff and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley uh, have been a little bit more aggressive in that than others have. It has been hard for me to find really clear areas where the alternative candidates are making strong policy cases for saying, here's what I will do for you that Trump won't. You know, I can't really tell you what Tim Scott is campaigning on at the moment, you know, even having seen his events and watched a ton of his ads. Um, So, you know, I'm a little bit surprised about the way this election has run in Iowa so far. I thought Trump would be much more vulnerable. I thought DeSantis would be uh, clearly stronger. There's still a few months and, you know, many of these elections sort of um, turn late. You know, uh, Pete Buttigieg won Iowa in 2020. And at, even at this point, Pete Buttigieg was way down the list of, you know, potential uh, uh, challengers there. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's still time. But right now, I think the the basic story in Iowa has been sort of an echo of the basic story nationally. It's that, you know, it's just nobody has been able to, and DeSantis seemed like the most likely guy, but nobody's been able to sit to, to distinguish themselves as like the main rival to Trump. And so it's sort of, you know, Trump and the, you know, and, and the seven dwarves, Trump and the minnows, um, something like that. I'm curious about whether the um, the politician endorsements that DeSantis has been able to get, um, you know, whether those have made any sort of difference or will make a difference in your mind. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that Trump is repeating himself in a lot of ways, you know, repeating yeah. what he did in 2016. But at the same time, I mean, so much has happened and he's so different. And one of the main differences is that he he seems um, a lot lonelier. Like he doesn't have his family with him. He doesn't have his former cronies. Yeah. He has all of these yeah. politicians who hate him. Has that not weakened him at all? Not really. I mean, again, I sort of thought it would and it hasn't. Um, I think that like the thing that's happened is that people who worked closely with him have come out against him, mm-hmm. you know, 
And it's pretty astonishing to run through the list of his White House chief of staffs. His vice president is running against him, you know. Nikki Haley, who was his ambassador to the UN, is, is, is running against him, you know. Very critically, Chris Christie, who was a pretty close advisor to him for a long time, ran his, his transition uh, committee, is going against him really hard. But at the level of the county Republican chairs, at the level of members of Congress, you know, this party has changed. And with the exception of a few holdouts like Mitch McConnell or, you know, Mitt Romney, who's leaving the Senate now, this is Trump's party. And if you look at what's happening in Washington right now, you have an establishment faction and an extremist faction in the House that are debating what to do about this really crazy seeming, um, you know, government shutdown menace that's looming. Both of those factions are basically all endorsing Trump for re-election already. You know, Kevin McCarthy has come out and said, you know, and he's the establishment figure, the Speaker of the House. He's come out and said, Ron DeSantis is just not on Trump's level. And, you know, I've got no time for him. And so there is a kind of weird dynamic here where he is personally considerably more isolated, more lonely, as you say, than he was either the last two times around. But at the level of the party, he has moved the party towards him. I know that the polls definitely reflect what you're saying right now. But at the same time, I mean, what's up with that, you know, relatively small crowd in Iowa? You know, it was a group of yeah. 800 to 1,000 people, as you said, yeah. back when it used to be eight to 10,000 people. Like, yeah. what what happened? I mean, I, I can give you my theory, and this is early, and I don't know if it's right, but I think that kind of outsider, we're going to change the world energy around Trump has also faded. I think his revolution kind of failed. Well, then will his followers still go out and vote, you think? They're just not going to the rallies? Could be, or could be they don't turn out to vote. I mean, Nikki Haley said recently, like, he's the least popular politician in America. And, like, that's true. <laughs> that's true. You'd see poll after poll have, you know, 60, 65 percent of the country saying, you know, we disapprove of this guy. Um, Joe Biden's pretty close to that level. But, you know, Trump is Trump is lower. Um, and so uh, when I got back from Iowa, a friend called me and said, you know, what's he like now? And I, I said, he just feels like a Republican to me. And that's how I see him right now. A Republican who's about to face a number of criminal trials. Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's kind of hard to know how things will shake out in the general election, you know, if there are trials going on, just yeah. Um, you know, the image of Trump in a courtroom, which we've already seen a couple of times um, just at these arraignments, it seems like it would be hard for that to help him. But at the same time, you know, in your piece, you mentioned that you spoke to a woman in Iowa who said that, you know, the more criminal trials Trump faces, the more his supporters will support him. Um, yeah. Is that the general sentiment that you got from most of the people you spoke with? Yeah, that, that, this, that this helps him in the primary and hurts him in the general election, I think, is, I is the general sentiment I've gotten from people at rallies, but also political consultants from both parties. I think that's kind of the, at least the conventional wisdom at this point, that the more other Republicans, the more he, the more, you know, conservative commentators say, this is a witch hunt, you know, the Biden administration is just out to get him because he's a political threat, the more it has bound, you know, sort of loyal Republicans to him, the more it's made them see, you know, his fights as theirs. But I think what Haley says about his general unpopularity is true. And, you know, he has done a lot of really terrible things. You know, uh, January 6th may be most memorable and most significant among them. And there are a great, great many people outside of the third of the country, roughly, that, that really supports him, who 
I think are pretty disgusted. And I think that, you know, for all the patterns that we talked about earlier around the economy and migration and, you know, uh, the p- potential intrusion of, of sort of Biden's own, you know, struggles to, to turn out, you know, young voters and, and so on. I think a really important dynamic in this election is going to be that those criminal trials, you know, though they might help him in the short run and among primary voters, it just sort of, you know, um, make clear to them that he is the kind of Republican warrior still. He is the one Democrats are focused on taking down. It's still his fight. That as much as it does that in, among primary voters, that, that these trials are going to look pretty terrible um, to independent and Democratic voters. And, you know, I think that um, one reason, and this may be speculating too much, I don't know this from his advisors or for him or anything, but um, one reason he's sort of might be eager to sort of rebrand as sort of the the most electable Republican to kind of bind a larger part of the the party to him is he's going to need those people if he's going to make it through these trials. You know, there are um, ways in which he kind of needs his popularity, not just to be niche, but to, to include the Republican Party if he wants to try to insulate himself from these very serious charges. So the least popular and yet most electable um, Republican candidate will not be participating <laughs> in the second Republican debate on Wednesday night. Yeah, um, It is now going to be the second debate that Trump has not appeared in. And I'm wondering what you're looking out for um, during the debate. Well, I was pretty underwhelmed by the first one. I thought that, you know, uh, none of the candidates really made a compelling case that they were offering something different from Trump or that Trump should be disqualified from running in the minds of voters because of these trials, because of January 6th, because of all manner of things. Um, They seemed to be caught up largely in trying to introduce themselves and then in sort of some jockeying amongst each other for kind of position as as a leader in the field, uh, apart from Trump. And I think what any one of them needs is to make a convincing case why Donald Trump should not be the nominee for this party, you know? And um, I think until and unless one of them does that, and I have not seen many signs that any of them are, are, are doing it in, in other venues, but until and unless somebody does that, you know, it's Trump's contest to lose very clearly. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Sure. Benjamin Wallace-Wells is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his piece, Is Trump Just an Ordinary Republican Now?, on newyorker.com. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sidney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.